Welcome to Calgary Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Wozny, and today's episode is part of a special Q&A series involving students from various Calgary post-secondary institutions and an industry expert from the business community. Out of 20 podcast episodes to date, a total of 53 students have participated, including undergrads in the Bachelor of Commerce, Software Engineering, Computer Science, and Business and Communications faculties, Master students in the Master of Management and Master of Business Administration programs, and Evolve learners from the Inception U Full Stack Developer program here in Calgary. As my two listeners will know, this initiative started during one of my mentoring sessions with Haskane MBA student Jagbir Randawa when we bounced the idea of having him and his MBA colleagues join me on the podcast to share their career expectations for summer roles in 2021 and upon graduation in 2022. It seemed only natural to invite industry experts to allow these students to obtain practical and value-added feedback as they navigate their careers in these COVID-muddied waters. I hope you enjoy this initiative, and to ensure you don't miss future episodes, I invite you to subscribe to the Calgary Business Podcast. I also invite you to leave a review to allow others to easily find my podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe. Good evening. Welcome to Calgary Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Wozni, and for episode number 306 or 306, I have four guests on the line, and uh, we're the, I don't know if you're students, but I'm going to call you students for the sake of clarity, because you're back to school learning about programming, and that, the three guests, and then from the Evolve program, part of Inception U, and then we have Jeff LaFriends from VizWorks. Jeff and uh, Femi, Pam and Scott, you'll introduce yourselves, and then we'll go right to Q&A. Sounds good. And let's, let's start with Jeff. <laughs> sure. So Jeff LaFriends, uh, co-founder and CEO of BizWorks. Uh, we're a software solutions company working in the digital experience space for large industrial clients in a variety of industries from uh, energy to construction, government, agriculture, defense, aerospace, uh, a whole variety of different uh, industrial environments. And for the benefit of the two listeners out there, Jeff was a guest, a uh, virtual guest on the podcast about a year ago. Jeff, was it? Episode, I'm just looking for my records, 114, mm-hmm. and uh, last April. So welcome back, Jeff. Thank you very much, Alan. Scott, I'll ask you to introduce yourself, please. Sure, yeah, Scott Luxton, um, and uh, Inception U Learner. We've been calling ourselves learners, I think, is the word okay. we're going with. Um, so yeah, Inception U Learner. I found myself uh, unemployed in August of 2020, and and uh, saw an opportunity to maybe gain a new skill and, and uh, transition into the, the tech uh, side of things. I saw a lot of investment happening in tech and in the news and was feeling a bit of FOMO, I guess. So uh, it seemed like the Inception program would be a good way to get a, get a foot in the door. And if anything else, I'd be able to learn a new skill. So here we are. Well, Jeff, for fear of missing out for FOMO, the FOMO crowd, Thank you for that. But it's Scott. I love Scott. <laughs> so let's go to let's go to Pam, please. 
Hi, um, my name is uh, Pamela Torres, and I'm um, also enrolled in the VOL program at Inception U. I guess we're about three months in now. Um, I graduated a long time ago from uh, University of Waterloo with a degree in electrical engineering. And my career up to now has been in um, instrumentation and control systems um, for engineering consulting firms, primarily in oil and gas. And I've seen so much growth and potential um, in the tech space within Calgary, I, I just I had to make the jump, and I decided to make the deep dive to immerse myself into tech and actively pivot into the space. So that's nice. where I am now. Jeff, you're an engineer as well, right? Or electrical and computer engineer, yes. So you okay? Some so we have some share. I didn't. Uh, that's good to know. So Pamela, soon Pam, you'll soon join Jeff in having those two two uh, tag or certifications on your on your uh, degree. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, Femi, Femi, let's, yes. let's, please. Most definitely, most definitely. Hi, everyone. Um, it's Femi Body George here. I am also currently enrolled in the Evolve program by Inception U. And um, I have a master's of science in finance. So I've been in finance for quite a while. I worked in corporate foreign exchange risk hedging. And prior to the pandemic, you know, I could kind of see the writing on the wall that things were changing in the finance world towards more fintech. And here we are, you know, a year into the pandemic, you know, the company I was with, unfortunately, went under due to some situations relating to, to COVID. And I, I just thought it was the perfect time to get into tech, to be honest. Perfect. Well, yes. Femi, let's, let's go right at Jeff, because Jeff is, he's got so many, so much experience on this, on the tech side. So I'd like to Hit him, hit, let's hit him hard with some good questions. Yes, please. yes, <laughs> yes. Hi, Jeff. So, Hi, Jeff. I have a, this is awesome. Um, I'm, I am so, I, I consider myself a futurist in a lot of senses. And looking at AR, MR, and the interactivity it offers to lots of businesses, it really, really does intrigue me. And um, one thing I wanted to ask is, with the pandemic that we're we're kind of at a tail end of, how do you feel it has impacted um, the adoption of new technologies? Hmm. <laughs> Big question. So, uh, first of all, because I don't know who's listening to this podcast, I, I'm going to define some terminology here so that everybody uh, who's perfect the podcast thanks, understands what's going on. <laughs> uh, so. Augmented and virtual reality is some terms we're throwing around. Mixed reality is another term uh, often referred to AR, VR, MR. There's also extended reality. Uh, there's a whole lot of terminology thrown around this broad uh, space of uh, immersive technologies. And uh, what most people will be familiar with from a gaming environment is virtual reality, where you put on a headset, you are brought into a virtual world, you don't see the world around you, uh, and basically you're immersed in a, a virtual setting that enables you to see and engage and interact in this virtual setting. Uh, it provides a three-dimensional representation of a virtual setting, so it gives you a, a much better three-dimensional understanding of what this environment looks like, uh, as opposed to a classic 2D screen where at best you're dealing with perspective-based 3D, uh, although there are some other technologies we can get into that get into the um, actual representation of 3D on 2D screens. But um, augmented reality, on the other hand, which is a, a class of different kinds of engagements, 
really represents the blending of the virtual objects into the physical world. So that's why it's often also referred to as mixed reality. Uh, but mixed reality really is a subset of the overall augmented reality spectrum. And augmented reality varies everything from, you know, a heads-up display on your car, which is uh, kind of showing you, you know, a, a version of your, your speed, the temperature, and all this kind of stuff within your field of view. Fighter pilots use this for very extensive immersive realities, heads-up display type stuff. Uh, you're getting into devices that may be phone-based, so you can use your phone as a lens into an augmented world where, uh, take Ikea, they did a very interesting one a few years ago where they're taking this, uh, you know, the ability to go into your house and say, you know, I really look, I would like to have a couch over there. I wonder what Ikea has. And using your phone, you can go and look and see and drop that couch nice. in the corner of your room and see what it looks like. And I don't like that fabric. Okay, Amazing. I'll fabric on it. And, you know, so this <laughs> kind of enables the client, consumer to, to, to look at something and really make sure it fits into that room and size and color and all the rest of it before they buy it. Uh, Pokemon Go is a massively big craze. It's uh, really an augmented reality application on your phone. Uh, and then the other end of the spectrum, you get into what's called immersive augmented reality or mixed reality, uh, depending which branding you go with. And uh, devices like the HoloLens uh, are examples of the kind of current state of the art when it comes to these mixed reality. Uh, these are headsets you wear, similar in some sense to a virtual reality headset, but they don't block out the real world. They actually add three-dimensional objects into your field of view. Uh, so you really look like there's, you know, something sitting there. Maybe there's a, you know, you've got your real cup and you've got an artificial cup sitting on the table in front of you and they look like they're both sitting on the table. Um, and so th this is wow. where you get into these kind of Amazing. versions of reality, right? And from an industrial perspective, uh, particularly the kind of work we do, because we're very much in the industrial use of these kind of technologies, uh, this is all enabling, you know, workforces to be more effective, more efficient, to to learn faster, to understand better. And, and that's where this kind of technology really kind of shines in the industrial space. And, uh, you know, so an example, we do work in the space around using this for industrial design. And, you know, think about, you know, a classical construction project, the, the cost of construction varies dramatically, of course, but there's research that shows somewhere between five to 30% of the cost of a typical construction project is in something called rework. Basically errors in construction that have to be redone or addressed in some fashion. And yeah. a very large percentage of those are related to design issues. And why does that occur? Well, that's because that's the first time anybody really sees this stuff in real life, so to speak. They get a true spatial understanding of, oh, you know, if that valve is sticking out there, I'm going to hit my head on that every time I walk by. We better rotate that valve. Or, you know, I can't actually reach that valve. It's too high above me. Or, you know, all these kind of things that can happen. And so um, when you have, you know, this ability to actually do this design work, uh, and actually enable people to walk around in a true immersive augmented reality, they get that true spatial sense. They can walk up to things, they can duck under these things and uh, you know, step over things. And they get that true you know, kinesthetic, I'm there type of feeling, which enables them to find a lot of these areas that classically wouldn't be found until construction occurs. Uh, so this Amazing. is the context of what augmented virtuality, particularly industrial augmented reality about. So then come back to your question, Femi, with regards to, you know, what, what's the impact uh, in, in terms of what's been happening? It's been yes. a mixed bag, as you might imagine. Uh, on the one hand, you're, you're dealing with, particularly in the, you know, the higher end stuff where you're dealing with uh, these immersive augmented realities, well, you have a device you've got to put on your head. Well, I don't really want to put that on my head after you just had it on your head. I don't <laughs> even want to be in the same room as you. Right. Uh, so you know, this, this changes the whole game when it comes to, uh, you know, how, how exactly are we going to show this to somebody when we can't be in the same room with them? And so, 
you know, you kind of get into weird things like we have to sterilize the whole thing and then ship it to their office so that they can use it in their office or, or their home more likely because nobody's in the office. And, you know, so it, it slows down the pace, if you like, for those kind of things. Uh, on the other hand, you get stuff uh, like what TELUS ended up doing. So you can imagine TELUS uh, on their, you know, the device side of things. Well, typically, you know, you, you, you know, you purchase some, you know, internet or telephone or, or uh, TV service, anything like that. And technician comes to your house with the equipment, he comes in your house and he installs it. <laughs> I mean, this is a typical the process, cable guy. right? And, yeah. yeah, literally the cable guy, right? Uh, however, in COVID times, gee, you don't want that person in your house. They don't even want to be in your house. And so now you have this challenge of, you know, the, the technical requirements of installing this thing are such that you don't necessarily want some person just to kind of look at a piece of paper and try to figure out how to install this. Um, so you do want a technician to support them, but they can't come in the house to do so. And so TELUS, as an example, worked with an Israeli company to create an augmented reality-based uh, application that people could oh, wow. run off of their phone. And their phone camera would then enable them to look at the device. The technician could talk them through it and say, yeah, yeah. you know, that's where wow. you have to install this one. And that button is what you push here. And here's the steps you go through. And basically enabling a, a, you know, the end user using augmented reality to work with this. And, and this is how they ended up doing so. You know, they would drive to your house, drop off the equipment, sit in your driveway in their truck with their device and walk you through installing it. Wow. So, you know, so it's quite a range of things that happened during COVID uh, with regards to this, but certainly remote presence. Uh, I mean, it's not in the AR VR space, but if you're getting into things like Zoom and, and you know, Teams and, and you know, the, the myriad of different uh, online video conferencing type platforms, they just exploded. Uh, because now people couldn't be physically in the same place. And so there was a need to do remote engagement. And so, the, you know, this proliferation of these platforms just went crazy during the COVID times. Jeff, I wanna, Jeff, I want to pick your brain on that the construction side because, you know, the Green Line, I just listened to the CBC the morning the other day, and they talked about the Green Line project is going to be delayed with more costs. And I'm, obviously there's some kind of, uh, you know, kind of escalation in there. But the actual... Do you think there's an opportunity for them to overlay some this exactly that virtual augmented reality for the 28 stations on the green line? I mean, that, that seems like a big real opportunity to put some tech in play. So at multiple levels, you know, and so there's there's the design phase of this where, you yeah. know, you want to make sure you do design it correctly. And, and part of the challenge often with these large scale projects is people don't get a good feel for what it's going to look like. That's right. Uh, you know, and so part of the reason why these things get delayed is that you get the community going, ah, that's what it looks like. We don't want that, you know. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you, you get that kind of thing happening for sure. And, and you, in spite of all the, you know, public engagement events and, the, you know, the, the lovely pop up, uh, you know, car, whatever boards they're using to put these little <laughs> pictures on and yeah. you know, the easels and so on. It's like, well, OK, I, you have to, you know, what it really does ultimately for these things is it really requires people to imagine what that would look like. Uh, and people vary a large amount with regards to their ability to imagine a three-dimensional environment. Uh, it's, it's kind of typical I run into when I have these conversations and somebody will mention, yeah, you know, we did this kitchen reno and it didn't look a thing like we expected to do. Or, you know, we went through all these things and it's at the end, it's like, eh, that's not quite what I wanted. But, you know, and, and so it's because we're, as human beings, not particularly good in general around imagining 3D spaces before we're physically in them. But yeah. once we're in them, we're very, very good at navigating them. Um, and so even when you're representing this stuff on a computer screen and you're doing 3D drawings and all the rest of it, you're still requiring a lot of imagination on behalf of whoever's you know, right. trying to look at this and understand it. And, right. and that's 
not always a good thing. I mean, they don't always understand it or they have expectations that aren't necessarily aligned with what reality is going to be. So, so from a public engagement, from a you know design perspective, for sure, the, you know the green line in any kind of large infrastructure project can benefit from from having these kind of technologies utilized. Uh, if you're getting into the you know the during construction phase, uh, and depending upon where the cost overruns are coming from, uh, and material costs are one of the big challenges because the the whole supply chain got messed up with COVID as well. But I don't know if that's what's impacting the, the green line in this case. But um, you know, if you're talking about it from a construction delays and construction issues uh, perspective, one of the ways of using this technology is to literally walk onto the onto the site and overlay the digital model onto the physical infrastructure you're building yep. and see, okay. First of all, you can do it for things like, okay, did we make any errors or, you know, and, and what's the next thing? Can I actually look at it and see, you know, well, okay, we got a problem here because this is going to be in the way of the next thing. So we got to move that out of the way. So we're not running into the, the, the trades on site trying to build this and can't build it because there's something else in the way. And, you know, as you can do all these kind of pre-planning type stuff around it or, or just progress tracking in general, there's, there's a lot of ways you can use this technology on site to really kind of manage and monitor the progress of what's happening. But they ultimately have to be blended into a broader project management environment that enables that to be used or, you know, effectively. Yeah, I mean, I, sorry to get in it because everyone, I, I did, I spent three years in construction in the in the Middle East, but I want to, Jeff, this is fascinating. I'm sure everyone else, I just want to get, get, get everyone else a chance here. Pamela, or Pam, please, uh, let's fire another question at Jeff. Oh, okay. Um, no, I just find that what, what you're saying very interesting because um, I was doing building fabrication in my last job and we were always arguing whether a person could actually fit delayed um, cable in a, in a, underneath the, the subfloor. And everyone's like, nope, they can't fit. But, you know, if we had that, then that would be like, yeah, they can't fit. <laughs> yeah. we, we did a, um, with one of the oil and gas companies, we, we dropped a, a full-scale gas processing plant into the, um, the film studio here. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know we have a film studio with three large sound stages, uh, and so we went to the largest soundstage, we dropped a full scale plant in there and we literally had people in augmented reality on the floor looking up at the substructure of this building to get That's a sense amazing. of how it was, you know. <laughs> So you're right. Wow. You, know, you could you could get awesome. that true sense of oh my, that's going to be difficult to maintain or access or even get in there for whatever that. Wow. Matter. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Um, I'm gonna, I guess, uh, veer off into a little bit of a different kind of um, question. Um, just because in in our cohort, um, um, like ageism is known to be kind of the elephant in the tech room, um, mm. and we have a lot of people in our program who are not so young. We're not university graduates, I guess. And we're trying to break into a career that is traditionally thought of for a younger demographic. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. what's your advice for people um, that are aspiring developers to break this kind of barrier? <laughs> yeah, good question. And so um, I think it comes at multiple levels. And uh, I'll, I'll pitch this from the perspective of what I've seen occur here when the downturns occurred in the oil and gas industry. Um, and it was at there was both a, a you know the individual person level and then there's the company level in terms of the kind of things that go on. So starting with the individual person level, the, one of the biggest challenges you have in any career shift is that in some sense you're starting over again, mm -hmm. uh, which means that your expectations that may have been related to your previous career aren't necessarily correct in your new career. Uh, and this could be anything from the work conditions to the salary expectations to the you know the, the kind of people you're going to work with, the corporate cultures, all these kind of things are going to change every time you go through a career shift and 
and this is the reality of the world. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody has, you know, should expect that they're going to stay in the same kind of job for the whole life anymore. It's just, it's just not the way things are going these days. But um, so I think the first level, though, it, it has to be that personal recognition that you're in some sense, you're starting over. Um, so when I when I look at it from a developer perspective, and I say, oh, you know, these kind of programs like the Evolve program, and, and other kind of these reskilling or upskilling or, or, or you know, these different programs that enable you to shift from one kind of career discipline into another career discipline. Um, the people who graduate from that have a tremendous amount of experience in whatever previous discipline they were in. And if they can find an opportunity where the kind of stuff they did previously is relevant to the kind of job they want to go into in the future, but now coming at it from a development perspective, as an example, um, they provide a lot of value to that. And that that kind of gets past some of that ages inside if you, you know, you look at it that way, because you're coming with a background in that industry, a domain expertise in that industry, which a junior person starting out of school is not going to have. And so you come with value as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're competing in, you know, head to head with somebody who's coming out of university, fresh grad out of university, uh, or somebody coming through a reskilling program, to me, I don't really see a lot of difference between them from the perspective that they're both junior developers. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, and, and that that's pro and con, right? So it's it's pro from the perspective that personally, I don't see a lot of difference. I think there's value in having a more mature mindset, which, uh, you know, somebody who's been experienced for a while has had, as long as you have the the right attitude around the software you're developing and the perspective on what you're doing. Um, but the software development world is a bit of a bit of a can of worms in some ways in that there's you know very different kinds of cultural environments within the software world uh, if you're going to go into as an example computer gaming uh, it's often associated with sweatshop kind of behavior i'm not, certainly not saying all gaming shops are like that but it's often associated with that kind of attitude that you bring them in young you just, you know, you literally slide pizza under the door and keep them there for 24 hours a day. <laughs> a week. Uh, and this is the environment. And unless you're comfortable working in that environment, you know, it's not the right thing for you. And so there tends to be that kind of association with the kind of gaming development world, if you like. And, and again, I'm not saying that's certainly not the case for all gaming companies, but that's just, there's a there's certainly a cultural expectation that that, that kind of stuff happens in there. Uh, you go to some other companies that are maybe more mature companies, they have a more kind of normal structured approach to how software development works it would be more reflective of the corporate cultures you would have come out of in your uh, and so so part of that is also finding the right company that has the right culture perspective and and to me finding the right culture fit is often much more important than whether you happen to have exactly the right software development fit but i mean to that to add to that point i mean if i take scott and i take your supply chain issue and you're building an app to help somebody say the green line you know, manage the supply chain. Scott's going to have that practical knowledge in your, and I'm putting, so, putting you on the spot, Scott. <laughs> Sorry. But, you know, like literally, then you're suddenly you've got a code, you're going to put an app in place or whatever it is. And then you'll, you'll have some practical user experience, real, real user experience in that, that area or expertise that could add value. Yeah, it's, it's a fun conversation. And, you know, in the Inception U program, we've been talking a lot about um, you know, like the types of environments we want to work in, the, the, the way we want to feel, our core desired feelings, um, and all that uh, essential skills work. And I think that's what we can maybe bring is that kind of mature um, 
uh, awareness um, of, you know, how we want to fit into a workplace as opposed to how we just kind of want to be there. And I think we talk a lot about choosing the right workplace for us as well when we're done, right? It's not just about mm -hmm. going out and finding a job. It's maybe finding somewhere where you're, where you uh, can make a difference, right? And, and looking for those matching, uh, those pairings, right? I mean, if you're 22 years old and you do the schmoober of uh, pizza delivery, and that you know, because you you eat a lot of pizzas, Jeff. Uh, you're, you and your cohorts, you know you, that that probably would be okay because you can make a better pizza delivery app. But then there's some other real business types that that the three, Pammy, Pam, and uh, Scott will bring to the table. But anyway, I'll, anyone want to add to that? Because I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and this is this to me is the strength that uh, you know people like yourselves bring to this is that you do have that mature experience. Um, ideally, you have relevant domain experience to the company you're pursuing, and so that yeah. provides you with additional value over top of a you know candidate who's fresh out of university and doesn't have any of that domain experience. Um, there's always a balance, though. You know, obviously, if you want to rest on that domain experience, you would have stayed in the career you had previously, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and so you know, so there's yeah. there's a balance there. You got to be careful with, of course. But uh, but you know, throughout my career, and I've gone through many different careers myself. I've always managed to leverage my past experience to to do something new and and just you know the willingness to learn the willingness to to try new things and explore new ideas and and so on that's been you know a much bigger strength than any specific uh, you know knowledge that I might have had. So Pam, thanks for a good question. And so, well, let's go to Scott. Scott, you can you can now throw us another que a question, in, please. Yeah, good. This is fun. This is cool. Um, so we've been like I said previously, we've been. Uh, learning about uh, all the tech skills, of course, that we will need to create great software, but also the that we'll need to create great teams, I suppose. And one of the concepts we've been learning a lot about is is Agile and the Agile methodology. And when I look at the BizWorks website, something that jumps out to me right away is that right there in the company values it, it notes the use of Agile. So I know that the Inception U facilitators aren't lying to us when they tell us they're teaching stuff that's being used in the real world, as they call it. Mm -hmm. um, we're about to set up on uh, project three, our final project. It'll be about 12 weeks working in a team of four to develop an application. And we're expected to use Agile throughout that process. Do you have any tips or hints or something to kind of help us do is This is a new concept for a lot of us. Can you speak maybe a little bit about Agile and and how we can best sure. take advantage of that way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and again, because we don't know who the audience is for this call, I'll, I'll describe what Agile is for everyone. Uh, and, and so classically, pre what we call Agile today, uh, the technology or the process, I guess you would say, that was used mostly in software was called Waterfall. Uh, and Waterfall is a process that was originally derived out of the construction and defense industries probably 40, 50 years ago now. Uh, which is really based upon this kind of concept that, okay, you're building a building. Well, the first thing you got to build is the foundation. And then you build the walls and you start building the floors out. And it's kind of this structured approach. And so if you, you know, if you build the building and then you realize afterwards that, oh, you know, I, I need to get a boiler into the basement and there's no room to get it in now because the walls are all in place, you have a problem. Uh, and so it, because of that structure, it was very much driven around the, okay, you need to spend a tremendous amount of time up front 
doing all the requirements, making sure you really understand everything you need to have in this building long before you even start the building. Uh, and then you go through the process of actually breaking down, okay, the different steps you have to go through to, to build this building, you know, pour the foundation or dig the hole first, of course, pour the foundation, do all these kind of things and ultimately end up with the building. Wonderful. And so software originally was built upon this structured approach where you define all these requirements up front, uh, and then you go through and you break it down into functional elements and, you know, how is all, how are these going to functions are going to meet the requirements. And then you bring it into, you know, developing each one of these little modules and you start stitching them all together. And at the end of the day, you do what's called an acceptance test process where you check off one by one that, yes, this functionality meets that particular requirement and it's done. Great idea. Practically speaking, it never works. Uh, and, and the reason, there's many, many different reasons for that that ultimately ended up in what we call agile. And so one of the fundamentals is that if you think about any kind of, you know, project, it's not something that happens, you know, between one day and the next day. It's a project that will take time, uh, six months to a year to two years to three years, however long it takes for you to complete whatever that project happens to be. And the world doesn't stop while you're working on this project. But your requirements essentially are frozen in time at the beginning of the project. And so what the needs of the business are at the end of the project and what the needs of the business were at the beginning of the project aren't necessarily aligned. So you can develop something that you know exactly meets the requirements and, and does no nothing for the company at the end of the day because it doesn't meet their needs at that point in time. <laughs> um, and so this is one of the fundamental flaws of, of Waterfall is that it kind of locks in time this idea that this is the things that this project needs to do. And if, gee, if you need to make a change to that, well, that's a change order process. And now you got to figure out all the ramifications of that and the costs for that. And, and this is where you get massive cost escalations in these kind of projects where you have to do a massive change order in the middle of a project because the business world has changed some suddenly within this whole process, right? Um, and because it's coming from this process of a foundational approach where you build foundations and structures on top of foundations, um, it's not easy to change things because it's built on this foundational structure of, well, if I, you know, if I want to make a change, I now have to go all the way down to the foundation, figure out what consequence there is to that wow. foundation, right? Uh, so it, it creates some real challenges with regards to iterating, iterating on this design as you go down the path of development. Uh, and then, of course, another real aspect to that is, gee, it's pretty much impossible to know all the requirements up front. Uh, because the time when you're doing the requirements is actually the time when you know the least about how this thing's going to work. Uh, you know the most about how it's going to work when it's done. Great. Well, if you could start at the end and work your way back, that would be wonderful. But then, you know, time doesn't work in that direction. And so, um, and so you're defining all the requirements up front. You're pretty much impossible to do that correctly. Um, you, it, even if you do it correctly, you're still within this process of the, you know, the world continues to turn during the period of this project. And so therefore the end point isn't going to be where you expect it to be. And so you quite often end up with failure and, and you know, not necessarily failure from the perspective you didn't deliver something, but failure from the perspective that it didn't necessarily optimally meet the needs of the, of the client that it was being developed for. Uh, so Agile came along and, they, and, and this came through many different, uh, different iterations before it became what we call nowadays Agile. But the essence of Agile is that it's an iterative development approach. And instead of defining you know, everything up front, what you define is essentially a, you know, a, a storyline. Sorry? So I was just say as you go, you kind of define it as you go. Well, you, you, yeah, it's an iterative development process. And so you define you know, kind of stories around, well, if a user is going to come up and start using this, what, what kind of experience should they have? You know, and, and what's, the, what's the most important thing for them to have to do initially on this? And if we could get this, then, you know, that would actually show some value to the client. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it's based upon, you know, prioritized levels of functionality that you iteratively develop and you do that in concert with the client to make sure that they're bought in on it as you go down the path. Uh, and it creates a whole lot of value ultimately because on the one hand, you've got, you know, the client engaged. So the client, this is not like I've handed over the project to your team, come back in six months and tell me how wonderful this thing is. You know, this is a, depending on the, the what's called sprint. So the, the development cycles you go through on this, it could be a one or two week or a three or maybe even a four week for some extreme examples, sprints where you go away for that period of time, you develop something, then you come back and you work with the client, you show it to the client, you give it to the client, they get to test it and use it and try it and you know give you your blessing or their, you know, this isn't quite what I had in mind. And so you can, you iteratively continue to develop it. And then once you've got that, it's like, okay, what's the next most important thing you need to do? And so now you work on the next most important thing and you develop that one and you keep going through this prioritization process until at the end of the day, they say, you know, what? that's good enough. That'll do what I need. Um, so the client's heavily engaged in that change management actually becomes a whole lot easier because now you're not, you know, at the end of a, you know, six months or a year long project trying to convince people this is the, the best thing since sliced bread and you should all use it. You now have people engaged throughout the process, championing it and, and really tailoring it to meet the needs of, of their organization. Uh, so it creates a lot of synergies between the development team and the end users of this kind of technology. Uh, and so this, you know, this is ultimately the, the structural benefit of, of, of an agile approach is this ability to really evolve it along the path. Now, the, the flip side of that is that from, a, you know, an accounting perspective, which is often where you run into some challenges in these things, that, although it's become less and less over time as people are more familiar with this, is that classically, you know, it's like, okay, you've bid on this, it's going to be six months with, you know, five developers and a project manager and a QA and whatever, all this kind of stuff on this project. Okay, it's going to be, you know, X number of dollars. Great. Okay, we're going to budget that kind of thing. And so it becomes a fairly easy management process from, a, from an accounting perspective because it's a, a fixed budget, fixed time. This is how it's going to happen in this. And if there's a change order, well, there's a structure in place for how to do change orders. And so it becomes something that they, you know, from an accounting and a classic management perspective is easy to do. But as I say, it never, it, typically doesn't result in what you needed anyway. So it's not necessarily a good process from that perspective. Agile, because it's more often driven around time and materials, which, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing cost. You get billed on you know, how many hours are spent during this particular month or whatever it is uh, for this project. Uh, the endpoint is a little bit more fuzzy, if you like. Uh, and so it ultimately is driven by the client who can say, you know what, we've spent enough money or we've got enough functionality and we're, and we're happy with what we've got and we're going to go forward with it. So they actually have a lot more control ultimately over where the project goes, but they don't always feel that way up front. And particularly people who are used to a more structured fixed price yeah. type environment don't necessarily feel they have that control that they have, uh, you know, in those kind of projects, even if it's an illusion, which it typically was. So. Jeff, I, this, this is incredible <laughs> listening to you because I, I mean, I, the overruns and and, and design challenges and work fronts and lack of work fronts, lack of spare parts. Those were common, very, very common in the Middle East, uh, you know, and, and I think they still are today. Um, the tech overlays could really, that kind of, that kind of project, the agile project like that, I, it could, I think it a huge value across in the Middle East, but that's just my view. Well, it ultimately, you know, and one of the underlying things that it does is it creates alignment. It creates alignment yeah. between the development team and the client to make sure that we're all on the same page. We're all trying to get to the same endpoint on this. Uh, and it allows you to, uh, and we get this all the time in the projects we do, it allows you to address aha moments. Because what happens is that, you know, the developers are the tech experts. The client isn't. They have a problem they want to solve and, you know, and they, they may or may not have as good an idea of that problem as, as they need to perhaps, but, but they know they have a problem and they know they need to solve it. Yeah. But they don't know the tech. They don't know, you know, what this tech can or can't do. They may have, you know, kind of a, 
a faddish idea. So, you know, AR is all of a sudden this fad. And so AR, we should throw AR at this or VR or, you know, <laughs> go down this path of what's the latest fad that could potentially use, you know, we could use on this, right? Uh, and you see this all the time. We, you know, get coming saying, well, we obviously need a VR application for this. It's like, really? <laughs> okay, let's step back and find out what your business problem is before we suggest the technology that's actually going to solve it for you. Nice. Um, and, you know, and so you, you kind of get down that path. But as you work through the projects like this, uh, the client starts to learn and they start to learn what the tech can and can't do. And they start realizing opportunities that they didn't even think were feasible or challenges that they didn't think were challenges. And so they are part of ensuring that this ultimately meets their, their needs and adjusting the path of the project as you go along the project to accommodate that. Scott, does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot there, isn't it? Yeah, no, we're, we're excited to, to get going on it. And I guess I'd just be curious if you had any tips for some learners who've never worked in that type of environment before, what to expect and, and how best to adopt it. Uh, so certainly the, 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 the key thing is that um, your, your timelines, your focus has to be really built around the sprints. Uh, you know, you're going to be doing uh, planning on a weekly, bi-weekly, whatever it happens to be basis for the sprints. Um, mm -hmm. you, you'll typically do daily standups, uh, which are essentially a, an alignment again within the team. You know, where are we? Are there any issues? Uh, is anybody can help make sure that's dealt with? And so it's really this, you know, rapid addressing of any challenges rather than it kind of sits and stews for a few days or a week or a month. And then you eventually go, okay, this isn't going to work. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is, is not part of the agile process. You really want to get on top of it very rapidly. And so it's the flexibility, but also the focus that you really need to incorporate into the way you do work in an agile methodology. Nice. Amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, conceptually, it's, it just speaks to me and I'm really looking forward to experiencing it for the first time here. Well, you know, there, there may be an opportunity then down the road, Jeff, we'll bring these three back. And, and, and particularly if you're using that agile uh, process, it'd be great to get that uh, the feedback in three to six months or whenever that is. I, for sure, yeah. I, mean, I think uh, once you've gone through it and you start to really, you know, kind of adapt your way of thinking to that, it's it's you'll see it in a lot of different opportunities where you can apply that that aren't necessarily software based. Mm -hmm. Let's jump over to Femi. Mm -hmm. Femi, you got mm -hmm. a question? Yes. Bring some foreign exchange oh. into this one. <laughs> not quite. Not quite yet. Um, I, I had a question on machine learning, mm -hmm. actually, and um, my question is, how how do you see machine learning, you know, really impacting even development, like in, in the coding side of things, in hmm. five to ten years from now, and how developers would be able to to differentiate themselves at that point? Uh, so, in some sense, I don't see it any different than any other industry, uh, and mm -hmm. you know, there. If you look at artificial intelligence and machine learning, which are slightly different aspects of, of technologies, but uh, people kind of mix them all together. And uh, um, the, the essence of it is in many cases, it's really what uh, I think was IBM, or I can't remember which organization referred to as augmented intelligence. Um, the intent mm. is really not to replace people, but to enable them to work better. Uh, and you see this showing up in a lot of different industries where, uh, you know, AI or ML or any of these technologies are, are starting to be utilized, where uh, the, the, there's a fear factor. 
you know, the biggest fear factor is, okay, I'm not going to have a job. <laughs> this is a very, very common fear <laughs> factor, you know, these kind of things, you know, they're going to take over and, you know, you know, we're, we're nowhere near the, you know, the singularity moment where, you know, AI is going to be able to take over for anything that a human does. Uh, but in niche areas that can be much more effective than the human being who might've been doing that classically. Uh, you know, a good example of this is the um, radiology as, uh, you know, profession. So, uh, you know, if you can imagine radiology, a large degree of radiology is examining imagery and trying to understand based on that imagery, what's going on in the human body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a, that's an image classification, image analysis problem that AIML type software can actually do in some ways much, much better than a human being can. Uh, that doesn't mean radiologists are out of a job, uh, but it does mean that they now have to adjust their job to reflect that that's now one of the tools they're using to be able to create, create you know, higher level insights. Uh, yeah. And so the I same see. kind of thing is going to apply to this being used for software development is that AI and ML tools within the development of software are going to become more and more available and more, you know, better and better at the, you know, their ability to do things. But ultimately, they don't replace the person's ability to understand what you're trying to accomplish with the code. Uh, and so in I some see. sense, they're just, they're like a library of capabilities that you bring into this development task. And now your task is to use that library which may include AI ML support to develop whatever it is you're trying to develop. Uh, you know, ultimately, and, and, and I look at this from our company perspective because our, we're we're a bit agnostic when it comes to the technology stack that we use. We, because of the number of clients and the variety of different clients we work with, um, the ability of uh, the people who are working in our team to change from one language to another language uh, over their career or you know even within the year uh, is a normal part of the environment we work within. Uh, and so this adaptability, this ability to continually learn and evolve and, and change the way that you develop software is a is a normal requirement now within our section of the industry, at least. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, so essentially, it, it's, you see it as a way of, you know, making people work faster. It gives you all the tools at hand and then gives you then have the ability to analyze things a lot more quicker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started off my career, uh, I did a degree in electrical and computer engineering, but I started off literally writing code in hexadecimal. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, you think about that, there's no way you could write, you know, some of the stuff that we do these days in hex. It just, it would take you way, way, way too long to even think about writing it that way, let alone trying to manage the complexity of writing something in hex that, you know, does some of the, the advanced technologies that we, the sort of solutions that we Very true. Use. So software as a whole has continued to get higher and higher level to enable more complex solutions to come out of that. And to me, AIML is just a, a natural extension of that where you now have, you know, think of it as a higher level language that allows you to do higher level things that you weren't easily able to do in Hex back in the day. So Jeff, on That's that, awesome. as the, tech, the tech stack evolves and you just said your guys, your team may use something different throughout the year, learn something new. How much is, you know, I know there's a no code, low code debate and there might be some, but for some of your clients, is there solutions there where you can, you can bolt that on and not have to recreate the entire thing from scratch? Well, so 
generally speaking, we never try to recreate anything from scratch. Uh, yeah. There's there's massive amounts of libraries of different kind of capabilities and, and modules and functionalities and all this kind of stuff. So as much as possible, we try to leverage those kind of things because there's no sense in recreating the wheel if you don't need to. Yeah. Uh, so so from just from a starting point, yeah, you, you definitely want to you know utilize things that are in, you know already in existence. But but we're finding that you know some of the stuff we do uh, and so low code no code is a very interesting environment. Uh, the stuff we do is at a higher level than a no code low code would actually support. Uh, yeah. no, no code low code has some tremendous capabilities for. Uh, you know, kind of a, a certain level of, of functionality within uh, software. If you once you get beyond that, you're going to struggle to do something in a no code right. environment, right? And so that's where you start getting into you know true software development. And you know, we have some of the stuff we do, uh, some of the really advanced web and mobile stuff that we do, as an example. I think we had uh, one of our programs. We had five interlocked uh, technology stacks to support yeah. one web application, right? Uh, and, and that's on top of a whole variety of other kind of support <laughs> modules and things like that. So, you know, this is not saying that a no-code, low-code environment could even come close to touching. But the, but the integration of that, because, come on, I'm going to go way back to, you know, C++ and then, you know, the, S, the, the database wasn't with Microsoft 395 uh, when it came out. You know, it's crashed again. The IT guy would come in, shut your computers down, <laughs> right? Because you have those, that bridge. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. I have to go back that to that one. But you know that bridge. You know the bridge. We we we're bridging from one software to the next, right? You just you, that complexity is probably not there, and maybe the ease of those five different tech stacks getting on top of one. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm being out loud here, but <laughs> Jeff. Yeah, I mean, it, it evolves. You know, in, in some sense, the challenges are the same as they were back when I was writing stuff in Hex. You yeah, know, you've got to imagine a solution. You've got to, you know, pull together the software code to try and make it happen. Yeah, uh, it's just that the things you're trying to imagine are, are a higher level functionality than we could deal with in hexadecimal code for sure, or assembly language. Uh, you know, and so you know, so in some sense, it, it, it's the same but different, if you like, or plus la France, plus la même chose, as the, <laughs> the French saying goes, right? So, all right. Well, let's Pam. Pam, you 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 fired something because I know you talked about Pam. You had a question, or at least on the email, you had something about the Panoptica. Oh Maybe. yes, um, yeah. No, I saw that. Um, that actually, uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine, and and that platform is actually used in in their their company. So I found that really interesting. Um, I guess my question is um, that. Some of the markets that you're trying to break into are, are very much based on, on traditional mindsets. Um, how, how do you go about, um, I guess, marketing your your software to to people who are resistant to change? Um, like, for instance, in oil and gas, um, people are very used to doing everything on 2D in, in, in AutoCAD or Navisworks. Um, how do you move that shift that mindset to something that's more tech-based i guess <laughs> slowly <laughs> uh, I, i'm being facetious but unfortunately it's a, and a lot of that is the reality um what i mean if you, you step back and you look at it from a you know kind of a macro level um you do see by and large that there are a number of industries that are very conservative and resistant to change for for all sorts of reasons um, we can dive into the oil and gas industry if you want to, but, no, but that's okay. in sense, yeah, in, in some sense, they're really not that much different than a lot of other industries, which are, are fairly conservative when it comes to tech adoption. And, and I should qualify this by saying, uh, you know, this is, we're talking about digital software technology here, uh, just for anybody who's listening on this, because, you know, tech has a broader 
realm that's right. digital yeah. software technology, right? So, um, so anyway, but within the software digital space, which is a space that I know well, um, you know, the what you find if you look at it, it from a kind of macro level is it kind of looks at this uniform conservative environment. But the practical aspect is that within that environment, you have a, a differentiation between the super conservative organizations, the the what I would call the the fast follower organizations, and then the early adopter organizations. Uh, so what you really need to do if you want to go, you know, and take, you know, the gas as an example, if you want to get stuff moving forward in oil and gas, you've got to find the people and the organizations that are more receptive to being early adopters, who for, for various business reasons see that they need to do something because they have a pain point and they, you know, and, and stuff that's available to them right now is not going to address that pain point. So they need to move forward to address something. And once you kind of get it proven out there, then you can go to the more conservative, maybe the fast follower groups who say, oh, they're doing that. Oh, okay. Well, we need to look at that now too. Um, and you know, once it's kind of proven and you know it's, it's enough de-risked, if you like, from that perspective, then they're more likely to want to adopt it as well. Uh, and so it's 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 finding those right organizations who are more likely to be early adopters is the way that uh, typically works well. Um, and it's it's often even not just the organization, but an individual within that organization who can champion this and just sees value in this and wants to move it forward. Okay. Uh, but it's it's not an easy thing, and, and this is a challenge for SMEs in particular, small to medium enterprises as they're trying to work with these large companies. Is that, you know, that, that often these companies are risk averse. Mm -hmm. uh, the company themselves, the corporate culture themselves, even the individual people are risk averse in there. And you know, oil and gas industry is uh, unfortunately very typical of this right now because there's a lot of fear in there of jobs. So I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make a bad decision. So therefore, I don't want to take a risk on you know a decision that might turn turn against me. Uh, and there's an old saying, you know, that nobody ever got fired for going with IBM. And unfortunately, there's a there's a significant amount of truth to that in in industries like the oil and gas industry, where you know that kind of decision, nobody can kind of come back to you and say, well, that was a bad decision. It was like, well, you know, they're they're a solid company. They've got a good reputation, and yeah, they may cost a tremendous amount more than a small innovative company. Uh, but you know, if something goes wrong, we can sue them. And right. unfortunately, and unfortunately, that's a mindset, right? That they actually look at it like, well, these companies are too small. They're going to go out of business before we can sue them. It's like, oh, well, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had somebody, and I won't name the company, but I had somebody from one of the major oil and gas companies who, who in a public setting, uh, said that, yeah, we're very good at killing off small businesses. Oh, <laughs> and you know, and he would he was indicating this is this is a problem because we're very good at killing off small businesses, right? Um, and you know, and this comes down to everything from the procurement process, which is really structured around you know working with an IBM who has a massive bunch of lawyers there who can kind of go through all this stuff to, uh, you know, to the um, the kind of hoops you have to go through to actually do the work with these organizations. To you know, some of them have basically said, you know, we may may work with a small company to do a proof of concept. But we're not going to go with them when it comes to actually deploying this thing, you know, if it turns out to be good for us. Mm -hmm. We're going to go yeah. and we're going to go to IBM or Microsoft or Amazon or whoever. We're going to have them replicate this at a much, much higher cost. Uh, but then we can rely upon them to be around in, you know, 5, 10, 20 years when we have a need for this to, to be dressed, right? Um, and so the small company kind of goes in with this, wow, we got a proof of concept. This is wonderful. And it's not going to pay us money or it's not going to pay us enough money, but we're, you know, we're going to get this big opportunity. And we're going to prove this out and they're going to buy it. And, and of course, then they don't buy it. And then, then the small company kind of burnt through its cash and crashes and burns. And, wow. and the, you know, the large company go back and say, well, that's why we didn't go with them. Clearly, they weren't, so, you know, they weren't solid. 
like, well, yeah, because you just killed them off. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, so this, this is part of the dynamics. And this is actually part of the conversations that I've been having and a number of people are having. I mean, how do we change that dynamic? How do we enable an alignment again between these large companies and small companies so they see benefits of working with each other? Yeah, it's a collaborative environment instead of such a competitive one. Yeah. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, the oil and gas industry, I'm sorry, I'm bashing on that industry a little bit, but the oil and gas industry has, uh, you know, additional challenges in that it's, very much in the eye of the environmental movements and the public perceptions and so they don't even want to admit they have a problem let alone you know ask people to solve them right uh, and so this this becomes a bit of a challenge uh, uh, for small to medium enterprises to get involved in these companies because you know the, the typically the last thing you want to do is you know develop a tech spend a tremendous amount of money developing a tech and then you know throw it at people and say hey do you like it uh, well, that, you yeah. know, to, that, to your point about that, uh, you know, the big company just dropped a little guy. I listened to a podcast a few years ago, and it was a blockchain security. It was a, it was a cybersecurity play. And so he was talking about we went to AXA, the big insurer. And he said, we went there, we did a presentation, showed him our, our, our wireframes and everything. And the next, it was like probably literally two weeks later on AXA's website was the actual, <laughs> their presentation. It just, you know, with the chain name change, it wasn't functional. But they, they were going to do it in-house. That's what the guy said. Mm -hmm. he, he says, but yeah. he said, you know, fortunately, we weren't beholden to that. We had other clients and we other work. And that I mean, maybe that's a lesson for a small business. Like, just, you know, make sure you don't just pitch to one, the big guy, you know, the big, whoever it is, oil and gas or industrial player. Yeah, I mean, you always have that risk. And, and we do see this. I'm not trying to bash on it, but that's an industry I know well. We do see this kind of thing happen in the oil and gas industry where preferentially they will work with an, an internal innovation team rather than yeah. work with a small to medium enterprise. Um, and typically that costs them a tremendous amount more money and they, and they don't have as innovative a team as you would work with a small business. But, yeah. but it's, you know, from a risk perspective, it's something that they can easily justify. Uh, and so, you know, so this, this is often, unfortunately, the dynamics that exist uh, in this environment. And I say it's, you know, really, we need to create an alignment of interest between the, the, the larger businesses and the small ones in, in order to change that. Well, as Pam said, like a collaboration. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there has to be mutual benefits and, and mutual uh, recognition of the risks and the way to mitigate those risks. Mm -hmm. well, thank Scott, you. maybe you have, you have. Oh, sorry, Pam. Oh no, I just I just I appreciate uh, your your viewpoint on that. Thank you, Pleasure. Scott. Let's let's fire another one. A softer question. A software question. <laughs> a softer? Did you say softer question? Well, I, you, you, I you interpret just, that as you want. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to ask Jeff to maybe look into his crystal ball a little bit here, and for the benefit of uh, a bunch of learners who are going to be graduating a program at the end of August. Uh, maybe, you know, what's the next best thing? Where should we be looking for some opportunities? Um, where do you see the, uh, the biggest, uh, I guess, the biggest space for some, for some learners coming out of this program to kind of to target? And, and what's exciting? What's coming up? Yeah, uh, yeah crystal balls, exactly. So, um, <laughs> the, um, I mean, I'll, I'll answer it in, in a slightly different way, perhaps. Uh, the first answer I'll give you is that uh, no matter what you learn, no matter what kind of things you're going to learn over the next six months to a year or whatever it happens to be, it's going to be obsolete within two to three years or five years or, you know, within whatever the lifetime of that particular technology is. So, you know, be prepared to continually learn throughout the rest of your career because it's the nature of the tech space. It, it, it evolves rapidly. Um, so, so that being said, uh, within the last three, four years, there's been a massive acceleration of the hardware side of augmented and virtual reality technologies. Uh, 
and we're starting to see, you know, initially it was consumer focused. Uh, when Microsoft first came out with their HoloLens, they didn't know what the market was. Uh, they came, in, came <laughs> they kind of came up with a generic device and said, try it, see what you think. Uh, now it was a pretty expensive device, so it's not like everybody could just go off and run and buy one. But um, what they ultimately recognized is that the marketplace for that was industrial. And so the, the second generation of that was very much industrial focused. Uh, but along the way, they actually caught the interest of the defense industry. Uh, and so in the U.S., the uh, Department of Defense there bought, and I don't actually know how many billions of dollars worth, but several billion dollars worth Apollo lenses uh, modified for defense applications. Uh, and, and the modifications are things like it's not just augmented reality, but now you've got, you know, um, you know, infrared sensors so you can actually see at night and, you know, it, it, it's integrated potentially with your weapon system and, you know, and all sorts of other things that they want to bring it in for defense applications. But, you know, so we're, we're seeing this technology evolve rapidly and, you know, there, there's companies coming out and I'll just throw in the fence because we're talking about that a little bit, but, you know, this ability to see through the sights of your gun. So imagine yeah. the ability to hold your gun around the corner of a building and see what it sees so you don't have to put your head around and get it hit. Uh, well, that's a know, game. That's a hack. The kids yeah. use that in, in the... <laughs> that's, that's a hack that they use. Yeah, well, there's, yeah. there's real weaponry being developed to do exactly that. You know? Yeah, and in so, CSGO. In CSGO, the kids yeah. use that. They have a hack that can see the wall and then they get... And the guy writes it, oh, you hacked this. I, I was watching the kids play CSGO and that's exactly what they do. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, science fiction becomes reality, right? And you know, so this, yeah. so we're we're certainly seeing as a hardware tech, which enables the software, uh, rapid advancements in the virtual and augmented mixed reality space for sure. And so you know, so I do think there's lots of opportunities in that space, and and lots of recognition of the value that that's going to drive. Um, related to that, one of the things that's going on um, is something called, uh, depending on which we listen to, spatial anchors or world anchors. Um, and the idea of spatial anchors and world anchors is that um, you can have a digital representation of any physical space. Uh, and so if I, as an example, wanted to uh, take an uh, example of, okay, we're, we want to do a, a, you know, a tour of downtown and I want to actually get a sense of, you know, what is that historical building over there? Well, if you actually had, you know, a device on you that knew physically where you are and could recognize what you're looking at through that device, it could then go into the cloud. It could pull up data relevant to that building or whatever you're looking at and overlay that data onto the building. Wow. Uh, you know, awesome. and so this enables now, you know, an engaging capability, which is well beyond what our current tech can handle, but which is really becoming where the tech is going in this space. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can imagine, obviously, consumer level of this where, you know, I'm walking around downtown, I look over at the restaurant and on, you know, on the window of the restaurant an augmented reality display shows the lunch specials and you know, yeah. maybe that's like I'm interested in. And, you know, and maybe because of my personal preferences, it only shows me things that I like to eat. And so that's, you know, I was, oh, yeah, they have that over there. I'm going to go over there and have my lunch, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so it really kind of creates a personalized over, digital overlay onto the physical world it's, is what this kind of spatial anchor technology will, will enable. Um, it goes all the way down into industrial where, you know, walking around a, a facility and you can look at a pump and have overlaid onto the pump all the performance information about that pump. And, oh, gee, that one's due for service. We better get somebody in here to look at it. And, you know, you can imagine how when you're really blending and this is the true what they call mixed reality where, where you're blending the physical and virtual together, enabled by something like spatial anchors, which creates that representation of physical and digital and the overlay of physical and digital. 
um, you now create a truly immersive world where, where these kind of things become possible and, and, and the application opportunities in that become you know, pretty much endless. Now, now, obviously one of the key requirements that drives this is things like visual recognition, which is an AI ML problem. Uh, and so, you know, it's not like AR, VR is going to be sufficient in and of itself to do this. You also need things like, you know, augmented virtual reality enabled by artificial intelligence, whether that's local or, or, or elsewise. And, you know, and so there's this tremendous, you know, capabilities that come out of both technology stacks and how they're blended together to support these kind of things. But Jeff, Jeff, this is crowdsourcing. This is Google. Is this a, you know, when you do the, the CAPTCHA, right? You could, if you worked with the city of Calgary and your spatial, let's say, say the green line, let's go back to the green line, right? Imagine, imagine if you're working on something where you can do, people are sitting on the LRT and then saying, what is this? And then it works together with Jeff, who's building that spatial awareness and that's that algorithm. So the seven seconds that they're, they're sitting on the train or whatever it is, and that capture, but localized, I think there's power, what you just said, Jeff. Oh yeah, I mean, you're, you're sitting on the LRT, you look over you know, at the buildings that are going by you and you get information about those buildings. And maybe you look over a building and it tells you on each floor, you know, which uh, offices yeah, are occupied later. by which, you know, you know, these are all sorts of things you can do in this. And ultimately, you know, for any of these things, you could do all this stuff. The question is, does it provide value? You know, who cares? Mm -hmm. And so you ultimately mm -hmm. have to do things that people care about, of course, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the technology and the way it's progressing is going to enable those kind of capabilities. No, but if you gather to today, let's take a project. There's a there's a real project that could happen life real time. So if someone's building that tech stack in terms of that that Google captcha, you know that is that a, is that a uh, that picture is that a smokestack? Is it a fire hydrant? Is it a crosswalk? Right. Mm -hmm. So you're asking people in the city of Calgary, what is this? You build the data, then you use that later for the spatial awareness for for historical sites or whoever's traveling throughout the Green Line later down the road or. Or as you build it, I'm, I'm talking about actually, as you build one thing, you're building this database uh, of not a Google search, but a CAPTCHA type, you know, an environment using yeah. geo and all. Anyway, yeah, a bit of a <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, obviously there's massive data requirements that go along with this. There's massive technology, uh, you know, bandwidth requirements. Five uh, G technologies is going to enable a lot of these kind of capabilities because it has the lower latency and the higher bandwidth that some of these applications are going to require. Uh, you know, so there's 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 a number of different technology stacks that have to converge to enable this to really work well for people. Yeah. But that seems to be the trending mm -hmm. that, that I'm seeing within the industry is, you know, this massive enablement of really higher level capabilities for for individuals and for industries and, and, uh, and so forth to do this kind of stuff. So um, so, you know, broad answer to your question, I think every technology <laughs> stack has opportunities in this space because it is a convergence of multiple technology stacks. It's not just a mm -hmm. single one that's moving forward on this. Um, but what you're going to do you know, as an individual is work in one area uh, and learn that area and be flexible to learn you know, adjacent areas if you want to start looking at higher level mm -hmm. applications of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So let, let's, can we, Scott, can, can you share and maybe Pat, each of you take a turn, share what you've learned so far? Is there anything you want to share? Can you start with Scott on that one? Is there, from the cohort, from the, the learnings? Oh, oh, wow. Um, like all the, all the tech is all new to me. I came into it with very little tech ground, so all that. And um, Java, I mean, JavaScript, React. Uh, we're, we're building full learn stacks right now. So that's a Mongo Express, React, and Node uh, stack. So that's what we're working on. Sounds like we're going to be learning some Python here coming up. And yeah, I don't know if I miss anything. Pam or Femi, your thoughts? Well, one thing... 
Pam, you could go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Femi. So one thing I was gonna say is um, that I find that I find is different with this program than anything else I've done most of my life is that they're teaching us to get comfortable not knowing how to solve problems right away, <laughs> but having the confidence and the tenacity to figure it out. I'm sure you could have asked any three of us three months ago to write a simple JavaScript uh, script function and we'll have had no idea what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's very different today. Yeah. You know, so that problem solving cool. mentality is, is it, we're personally, I've, I'm getting there, getting to solve problems faster, faster and faster and faster and faster. And that's, that's a very interesting way of putting it because one of the things that we've found, and this is one of the challenges we've occasionally had with uh, people who've come out of a you know, previous career and then coming into software, software requires a, a very logical mindset. Yeah. Uh, and even engineering background, and I have an engineering background, so I can say this as an engineer, even engineering background doesn't always teach the logic that you need to have for software. Uh, and so having a technical background isn't necessarily sufficient to really kind of wrap your mind around the logic of software and how things have to kind of connect together. Uh, and so I'm glad to hear that they're teaching that and enabling that within, you know, the kind of stuff they're teaching you, because that is a, that's a critical uh, skill you, you know, you need in order to produce more than just a, you know, simple software for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, before Pam, before you ask your question, Pam, Jeff, back to your gaming, uh, uh, the, the, the part of gaming. So the, the Reed Hoffman from the PayPal LinkedIn uh, co-founder, he literally said recently on a game, it was called Game On on the podcast. And he said the early gaming, you know, he likes those games that require people to solve problems on the go versus chess, which has, you know, defined uh, solutions and some certain games like that. He said, literally my gaming as a kid, going back to however early is, is, is it really played a part and not the games like chess and checkers or, but it was the games like, Dun I don't know the, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it was, but he said the games that caused you to think like fam to Sammy's point, but that problem solving on the go, and that those he says that he believes the the, the coders are today, and those some of those big software companies that 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 background really helped you know them frame that. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's it's a it is a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking that you might have had coming out of a, a previous career, and so wrapping your mind around you know the approach to developing good software is is really key. So Pam, maybe you want to have it fired that uh, talk a little bit about your experience at uh, Evolve. Yeah, um, no, like the the way that they teach is all about um, project project based learning. So if there's no homework, they say, okay, here's here's a little bit, just a taste of what you should know. Go find the rest out. Um, so <laughs> we 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 are it, it's it's on us to to figure out what we need. Wow. Ask other people. Ask the the facilitators. And so it's a very um, it's it's very true to industry. Um, you're not given, you're not handed a silver platter of information. You have to go out and get it. So it really teaches you how to be curious and um, and how how to get the information you need. Um, so mm -hmm. it's yeah. Does Google 
Google is wonderful. Oh my goodness. And Stack Overflow. <laughs> you, you, you know, the, the one thing I find interesting about um, software development now, um, I did a little bit when I first graduated and it was very difficult to get information at all. And now with all the, the pre-programmed libraries and everybody's open source, um, there's yeah. um, an amazing amount of information that you can just learn. Like you can learn about visual visualization or you can learn about um, VR very easily nowadays. So it's it's amazing. This, you, you mentioned this. Is it Substack or was it what's it called? Um, so uh, our program. Stack Overflow. Oh, Stack Overflow. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something you guys use as well, Jeff? Yeah. I mean, anybody who is mature, even junior at doing software, knows that you pull from all sorts of different sources of, of information with regards to you know modules and stacks and capabilities and problems of you know ways to address problems. In other words. This is the massive support that we have, and you know. And coming back to you know, an earlier question, AI and ML can enable you to do a lot, a lot faster potentially, right? So you don't have to do mm -hmm. a lot of the manual search. Uh, it could be done for you when it knows the kind of problem you're trying to solve. And so, you know. So I think you know this is just an ongoing part of being a software developer. And and you know we often find that the the, the best people, that the highest caliber people, software is not just a job that they come to do. It's it's the life they live. Uh, and, and they have a passion for it. They love it. They really, you know, and, and when they go home, if they're not working on stuff for us, they're doing some other stuff because they just love this, you know, and they, they love doing it. Uh, and so, you know, so this is, this is part of the um, mindset you go into because it, it starts becoming a passion. You, and it's, it's really reflective in the fact that, you know, when you do things, you can see the results of that. You know, I've, I've written this software and it works and hey, look at that, it does yeah. something, you know. Uh, you know, this is one of the things I miss not being a practitioner anymore at that level is, that, you know, when I do something, it, the results are a little more amorphous, shall we say. But uh, <laughs> and so you don't have that kind of direct connection to I did something and, I, you know, I can see the results right away from it. That's brilliant. Well, I have to say, Pam, Pam, Femi, Scott, any other quick questions or anything on top of the mind? I had one. Um, I think this is going back to, I believe, the question Scott had, had asked earlier. And you, you said something about hardware being accelerated. Were you referring to GPU, GPU processing, or the developments uh, in GPU hardware? Yeah, you know, in my case, I, or the, what I was referring to there was really the accelerated development of hardware. So we're we're getting you know rapid iterations of hardware coming out. Uh, the capabilities of a virtual reality device today versus even six months ago or two years ago is is quite different and quite a bit better than it was. Uh, and so you know the capabilities of this technology is accelerating at a very rapid pace, which means that mm -hmm. it's enabling you know functionalities and 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 software applications that we would never even thought reasonable you know two, three years ago. Amazing. I think Femi, Femi's a Bitcoin miner. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't even get a, you can't even get a GPU anywhere these days, even if you just wanted one for your personal yeah. computer use. Yeah. No, we don't want to go down that old Bitcoin path. Well, everyone, this has been fantastic. I, I don't, you know, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today. And and, uh, you know, Jeff, any last words, I, you know, for the, the learners, the evolved learners? I, and good luck with where you're going. I think, you, you know, you've chosen a path in which there is tremendous opportunities ahead of you. Uh, you know, as a, as a company, I can tell you personally that uh, there is never enough software developers to do all the work that we have, let alone all the rest of the companies in the industry. So there certainly is a tremendous amount of opportunity out there. 
Uh, you know, we as an organization, as an example, are really, you know, when we look for people, we're not looking anymore just in Calgary, although we, obviously this is where we're located, so we preferentially look in Calgary, but we look anywhere within a reasonable time zone to find people who can join our team. Uh, we've just been bringing on some people from Brazil, as an example, because we have some connections with the Brazilian marketplace. Uh, and so it's a, it's a global marketplace. You know, this is certainly the other thing I would say is that where you live and where you work is becoming more and more disconnected in the digital software development uh, space. Uh, and so, you know, finding a company to work with, there's some amazing and great companies here in Calgary and, you know, definitely, you know, seek them out and see if you can find opportunities there. Uh, but don't necessarily limit yourself to that. If, even if you love living in Calgary or wherever you live, uh, you know, and you want to stay there, but there's no company that wants to hire you there, look elsewhere. Uh, you know, companies these days are more and more open to the idea that we'll hire you for wherever you happen to be and you stay there. Uh, or if you, you know, you're here and you want to move someplace else, you know, that's fine. You're still working with us. I don't care where you're living. Uh, wow. So it's a very interesting Amazing. world and it's evolving very rapidly right now. And so, uh, you know, this whole globalization of the tech industry is going to impact both you as individual learners once you come out uh, and, you know, where you work and, and you know, where you live. Uh, but it's also affecting companies and where they're setting up shop and, you know, where they're doing business versus where they maybe, you know, have their you know, legal headquarters, if you like. Uh, and so it's it's kind of an interesting and very quickly evolving marketplace from a, from a software development uh, environment. Scott, Pam, and Femi, I have to repeat this, what Jeff said earlier, software developers, it's not just the job they do, it is the life they live, and if I got that wrong, Jeff, please correct me, but that is so profound. Yeah, it's certainly a passion. For the people who are really good at it, it's a passion. Mm -hmm. You start really loving it, and you start really, you know, wanting to do it, and and you, you have to find a balance like everybody else does. <laughs> we, you know, we have to have a work-life balance. And as somebody put it the other day, which I thought was quite hilarious, you know, it's like we, we were talking about this work from home environment and then this lady was saying, no, it's not work from home. It's live at work. <laughs> <laughs> this is where I work now. I just happen to have a bed here too, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, you have to find some balance that works for you and, and whatever works for you is great. Uh, but certainly, you know, the, the people that I see who are really, really super good at this, uh, you know, they, they, they go beyond. It's not just a job. They're not just going in to write a bit of software. You know, they're really thinking about, you know, exactly what you're talking about. That, you know, the sources of data you can find that can help you enable you to do a better job of this and do a more, you know, do it faster. And this is the kind of things you want to learn because that's what's going to enable you to really be successful at this career. Well, with that, Femi, Scott, Pam, thank you for joining Jeff and Jeff for all the wise words and, and all that for sharing today. Everyone, welcome to come back in six months. We can revisit this cohort and see what you've learned and, and see if you've taken Jeff's words to, uh, to hand. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the <laughs> Thank opportunity. You so much. You're Thank so you. much welcome and good yes. luck, everyone. I really I look forward to hearing how your careers progress. Thank you. Most definitely. Right. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank right, you. Right, everyone. Have a good night. Stay safe. Cheers. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. -bye.